Shareable is part of C-Suite Radio. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this either is or will become your favorite podcast. This is Shareable, the podcast so good, you got to tell someone about it. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard. In every episode, I talk with someone about the impact that people and technology have had on their career and their lives. So, let's get to it. Today's guest was born at an early age, and he drooled a lot as a kid. In fact, he drools a lot as an adult. Uh, when he's not trying to be funny, he researches online conversations for consumer insights for mid-market brands. He also consults with companies, large and small, on digital marketing, and he has a passion for helping small businesses through his blog, jasonfalls.com. That's right. Today's guest is Jason Falls. He's also a kick-ass speaker. I've seen him a number of different times, and he really tells it like it is, which is one of my favorite parts about Jason, is that in the field of social media marketers where there are so many snake oil salesmen and fakes and frauds, uh, Jason's a real deal, and he really puts a lot of thought into how this industry is developing and how he can help businesses in the right way. He's a nice balance of kumbaya and hard-nosed business analyst. Um, and he's somebody who I've admired from very early on in my social media career. Uh, I consider him a colleague and a peer. Um, we've kept in touch for quite a long time, and he's someone who I have the utmost respect for in the social media marketing world. Uh, so definitely don't miss this episode because Jason is uh, an incredibly sharp guy, and this episode is incredibly sharp. Welcome back to Shareable. Today, I am joined by somebody who I've been super excited to bring on. And I'm going to be honest, I think I've been holding out on bringing him on. I wanted to make sure we had the audience behind us so that uh, I didn't waste this opportunity because I know he's a very busy guy. Today, I have on the line with me Jason Falls. Jason, do me a favor and just tell for those few people out there who don't know who you are yet, tell them who you are and what you do. Well, I was raised by wolves and, uh, no, no, I, uh, I am, I guess the best way to describe what I do is I'm a digital marketing strategist. Um, I've worked with a couple of agencies and a couple of brands over the years. And certainly within those agencies, I've worked with dozens of brands, but, uh, right now I am engineering a startup called, um, the conversation research Institute. Uh, we basically do market research for companies to find out more about their customers, what they're saying about their products and services. But instead of doing focus groups or surveys, the way traditional research companies uh, approach it, we actually go out and analyze online conversations on, on the web and social media channels to uh, be a fly on the wall uh, in the virtual world and find out what people are truly saying without any sort of bias or prompting. Um, I also do consulting work for uh, a number of clients uh, uh, kind of concurrently with that as we build that company. Um, and um, written a couple books and speak a little bit here and there, and that's pretty much me. Yeah. So for for the listeners, uh, Jason is the author of a book called No Bullshit Social Media. So right there in the title, that should give you an idea of of the perspective that Jason comes from. He really is a straightforward, uh, straight shooter. I think it's so cool that you're doing the Conversation Re Research Institute right now. Uh, did I say it right? Conversation Research Institute. Yep, that's it. All right, sweet. Yeah, I think it's so cool that you're doing that because I often, when I'm meeting with clients about social media, 
the first thing they always want to talk about, as you know, is they want to talk about what are we going to say? What are we going to post? What are we going to – and it's so rare that they actually stop and go back first and, and do that initial research and listening and understanding. And then even less common for them to do it on an ongoing basis so that they can adjust and adapt to the conditions of the market by understanding what people are saying. So I think it's so cool that you're doing that because you know you carry with it the experience and the clout that you've got. So hopefully this this kicks off a trend. I'm, I'm in your corner rooting for it. I hope so. You know, the clients that we've worked with so far, you know, you're, you're right. And the clients that I've worked with over the last 10 years or so, you know, they have a tendency to say, okay, well, what's our message? And you first need to say, well, what do people think about you now? What are they saying about you now? And what do they want your message to be perhaps? Um, and so when you go out there looking, it's amazing the difference between what you think people think of you and what they actually think of you is. And the uh, clients that we've worked with so far have been quite delighted to find that we can uncover some insights that they didn't know uh, about their fan base, about their customers, about their prospective customers, their competitors. And so it's it's interesting data to work with if you're kicking off a campaign or a product or you know launching a new company and having that intel before you go to market uh, makes you put you in a better position to be successful. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's really interesting because um, you know you're you were one of the first people I actually um, uh, quote unquote followed in the social media space. I was kind of early in. You had you had already kind of been in it for you know uh, I don't know how long you were in it before I kind of came to the table and and started following uh, you on Twitter and then saw you at Social Media Plus. Um, but you know, early in, I remember us talking about the the listening piece of it, and I, I remember how important I thought it was then, and how interesting it is that social media—the only thing that really differentiates itself in many ways from advertising for a company—is that you can actually listen to what other people are saying. It's not that you couldn't reach many people before; it's just that you had to go through a gatekeeper, but you could still do it. But now you can actually listen to people. Yeah, the the, the social web is you know thirty years ago you know, marketing managers would have given their left arm to know what everybody was saying around their water coolers on Monday morning, right? You know, what are people saying about life, about what they're purchasing, about companies they've dealt with, about their family experience, music, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now you can. The internet is one big water cooler and you can actually uh, go out there and find what people are saying. The difference between what most people think of in terms of social listening and what I do, which is conversation research, is social listening tools are typically used to uh, find mentions of a company and route it to customer service. So it's a very reactive practice. Um, and the software that's out there, the social listening tools that are out there, is pretty sophisticated. And you can you know, monitor what people say about you and react accordingly. What I try to do, though, is take those tools and use them you know, for more than the 10% that, of, of their capabilities that most people are using them for. I try to go out there and proactively say, okay, well, what are people saying about um, uh, the environment in this particular vertical? What are soccer moms saying about their experience with this type of topic? Not just looking at it from a company perspective or a keyword perspective, but actually trying to mine conversations for insights that you can turn around and make marketing decisions around. It's got to be a lot of work, which is probably why so many brand managers and, and CMOs and directors of marketing probably don't get involved with it. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot of manual labor because the, the one thing that I will say, even though the social technology you know, tools that are out there are very good at um, you know, finding and counting, uh, they're not very good at analyzing. And so we add a layer of human analysis onto the data collection uh, where we manually go in and code and score things. So you get better sentiment results, you get better geographic results, you get 
better gender results. So your demographics are going to be better. And then we also go in and say, okay, what is this actual conversation about and how can we code it so that when we look at everything in aggregate, we understand the real themes of the conversation, not just the, 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 the keywords with the highest count number. Yeah. Makes total sense. Um, so I want to pivot because I think you and I could talk about the, uh, the, the social listening and conversation research for hours. And I actually want to save that for another conversation where you and I go and do a really deep dive on how all of this stuff works. So if you're cool with that, I'm going to, I'm going to table that and put that off for another episode that you're coming back for. Sure. And for this one, I want to talk about you. I want to talk Uh-oh. about the, uh, the experiences you've had in your life. I want to talk about uh, the people, the technology, and how they've helped shape your career and bring you to where you are. So as long as you're cool with that, that's where I want to go. Let's do it, man. All right, so here we go. Jason, I want to talk to you a bit about um, how you use technology. So these are just some quick, like, getting to know you type things. Would you consider yourself an early adopter or a late adopter? Early adopter. Uh, well, I, I kind of knew that. But, you know, there's always, like, the in-between. You never know. And it's, <laughs> I think what's interesting about these questions is it's, it's a self-assessment. So I've had some people on that I consider really techie, and they put themselves lower than people who are more Luddite and put themselves higher. So it's interesting. Wow. Uh, rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 with your technology usage. Um, I would say probably a 7.5. Interesting. See, there, there it is. There's a, there's a perfect example. Um, yeah. So uh, what would you say you're more like – I'm actually really interested about this one. What would you say you're more likely to do online? Create content, curate content, comment, or quietly watch? I know it's not D. Yeah, I'm not quiet about anything. Um, I I think I I probably have a tendency to curate more than create, but it's got to be one of those two. Okay, cool. Yeah, I figured as much. And and, uh, I'd say I probably would have to add like another one, like uh, make sarcastic comment and rabble rouse. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's creating uh, content. So yeah, smarting (laughs) off the people on Facebook is kind of my my thing. Yeah, my favorite ones are the ones where I can't quite tell if you're joking. Those are the best ones. (laughs) Well, see, that's that's why I add that little head, that little ATH, you know, at the end. If I add that, you know I'm joking. You know it's a joke. If I don't add it, you can't be too sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I dig that. Um, And then uh, are you an iPhone user or an Android user? iPhone. All right, cool. All right, so premise of the show, I think we talked about this, is that the the human beings are impacted by two forces that we cannot escape. That's people and technology. And those two things shape our lives. People say things to us throughout the course of our lives and guide us in certain ways or or show us things that we don't want to do and send us in a different direction. So people are always changing the course of our lives, and so is technology. Your career, I'm sure, is – Uh, vastly different than it would have been without some of the technologies that you chose to adopt. So I'd like to start with technology and how you've chosen to use technology in your life. You kind of, uh, I, I remember the time we went to that Phillies game and you, you kind of told me about your history in, uh, in, in sports, uh, journalism and, uh, you've had this interesting career path and somewhere along the way you made decisions to adopt technologies at certain points or to use them for your career. How would you say that your choices of using technology has shaped who you are today? Wow, that's a really deep question if you think too hard about it. Um, I, I think, you know, my entire career to a degree has been based on my ability to adapt and change and use technology. When I was 14 years old, 
um, I marched into the local radio station and said, I want to be a DJ. And part of the reason I wanted to do that was because I wanted to play with the, the boards with all the knobs and stuff. I wanted to figure out how to use, you know, the audio equipment. Um, and so I've always been in some sort of job where computers or technology was a part of what I was doing. And I think the the career path, you can almost sort of go backwards and draw lines to say, okay, he got this job because he knew how to do, use this technology or he was, he had adapted and shown that he could, you know, step it up a level in this next opportunity. So technology has been sort of a foundation for me in everything that I've done from the time I was a disc jockey until um, I moved up and started using digital uh, editing equipment in the broadcast and radio world. So that helped me get uh, parlay kind of a, an internship into a job at the network level of, of producing. Um, then I, you know, moved into a sports information role, which was a PR guy for college athletics, where I was using some of my broadcast technology background, but then I was also starting to explore the internet and build web pages and websites and understand how to use computers to keep statistics at ball games. And so there was always some sort of underlying technology. And I think my ability to get enthusiastic about something new and learn to use it and adapt and change and make things faster, better, smarter has been sort of that, that underlying foundation of everything that I've done professionally. Do you think that, um, I, I, cause I often wonder this as, as a geek and a, you know, tech guy myself as an early adopter, I wonder, do you think it's somewhat the choice of career path that we took that, that technology gives us that edge? Or do you think it's sort of a universal thing? Because the examples you've given it, it really, they all kind of make sense that technology would have given you that somewhat of a leg up or kind of a boost into that next role. But I think about, you know, um, people who might be in, I don't know, accounting or in, um, that's probably a bad idea. You know, actually, every example is immediately coming to my mind. I think the technology probably is helpful, but I, I guess I'll throw it back in your court. Do you think that that there are industries or there are career paths where technology doesn't matter as much, won't give you as much of an edge or let you move faster? Well, I mean, I think anytime you get into, you know, the you know physical labor, manual labor, possibly, but even at the same, even, even at that note, you've got business analysts that can go into, you know, sanitation work or, um, you know, uh, construction or, you know, uh, even assembly line work and, and tweak and, and manage those. And assembly line workers are using, you know, more complex computers than you and I are on an ev everyday basis. Um, and these are not necessarily people who are knowledge workers or who are trained to, uh, you know, to use technology in, in the way we think about it, but they're using these complex computers and machines that lift engines and everything else. So I don't know that you can really find uh, a career path in the knowledge space that doesn't have some sort of technology backbone. And you're finding it less and less likely to find a career path in the, you know, uh, the manual labor space that's that way too. Um, I mean, I th you know, the, the, the ones that come to mind are, um, I don't know, housekeeping, um, you know, but at the same time, you can make the argument that technology is going to fall in there because, you know, People are using HR systems to clock in and clock out and so on and so forth. So technology touches just about every one of our lives in some degree uh, or fashion these days. And um, it's just part of, uh, of the evolution of the world, I think. So I think, you know, we've got the technology that you kind of mentioned there that, that you can't really avoid that they're kind of part and parcel of the job. But I think there's also the elective side of it, which it sounds like 
in the earlier part of your career, especially, you were very interested in again the the knobs and the buttons and the dials that you could push and pull and and put and press on. And throughout your career, you've kind of tried on new things and wanted to learn new skills. So this question is kind of more of a personal one, meaning personal from me, not that I'm going to go into your personal life, but uh, I'm 36, about to be 37. And I find myself starting to feel a bit curmudgeonly about new technologies. Like I'm like, oh, come on, can't, can't you just be happy with what you've got? So I'm wondering, you know, you're a year or two older than me. Have you found yourself being less um, eager to try and adopt new things to, you know, to get ahead in, with the same kind of eagerness that you had when you were, uh, you know, in the earlier part of your career. I, yeah, I think I think that's I think that's the case, and 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 I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one is new social networks. It took me, you know, I, of course, I was saying in two thousand eight and two thousand nine that that there was not going to be a Facebook killer. Uh, so I've always thought that Facebook has had the goal of becoming a social utility, and that's what they're trying to become, something that we count on every day for communications interaction. I don't see that changing anytime soon. I still believe that. But, you know, starting in probably 2009, 2010, as new social networks emerged, I was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. I'll give it, you know, 60 days, let the, you know, the Robert Scobles of the world play with this crap. And, and then if it actually looks like it's got some legs, then I'll go try to figure it out. So I started to become more curmudgeonly about uh, social networks at the time. Uh, in terms of you know greater technologies beyond that, um, I've been a, a little slow to the whole you know artificial intelligence and uh, and virtual reality, art, uh, augmented reality uh, type approach. Um, part of it was because I was intimidated. I felt like holy crap, this is a whole new world to learn that that I don't know that I understand it, in even the backbone of the technology behind it and whatnot. But as I've you know as it has had some staying power. I have started to become more familiar. I, you know, got some uh, virtual reality goggles for Christmas from uh, from my uh, kids, and I've uh, started playing with apps a little bit more and seeing how they could be implemented. But yeah, you're right. The older you get, I think the less, uh, you know, change oriented you become because you become comfortable. You're like, hey, I figured this piece out, and my world is working really nicely, and my clients like what I'm doing, and I you know, I'm even thought of as a thought leader in this kind of space. I don't want new crap to come along and dethrone me. Right. So you get, I think you get a little, uh, complacent and a, and a curmudgeonly sure. Um, but at the same time, I think it's easier for guys like you and me who have adapted to change over the course of our careers to say, all right, I, I'll, I'll go learn that too. Um, so I think it's, it's helpful to kind of be aware of that and make sure you've got the right attitude on when something new comes around. Yeah. And speaking of which, I've heard you're really big on Ello and Mastodon now. <laughs> is, you know, is, is that true? <laughs> I've, I've heard that you're blowing up on those. You know, I, I am proud to say that I do not have a Mastodon account. Um, I went and looked at it when it started to kind of blow up about, you know, three or four weeks ago and people started saying things about it. I went, took one look at it and was like, this is way too open source tech world. Nobody's going to use this damn thing. And I just didn't, I didn't sign up. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's actually just talk on that for just a second because I, I, I looked at it. I just signed up last week. I admittedly, I looked at it and I was like, all right, you know, I, I at least got to secure my username just in case. But, um, I looked at it and I thought, you know, from a, 
Let's get like hippy dippy because I remember the first uh, social media thing I ever saw you speak at, you talked about sort of like the kumbaya side of social and then like the practical business side. So on the kumbaya side of social media, this is kind of uh, a big idea. This We don't have a centralized kind of location. There's no ads. There's no controlling thing. Like everybody kind of has their own little server. It, you know, it's a, it's really kind of the democratized kumbaya. Now, to your point, I think it's a little too nerdy for the everyman to sign up for a Mastodon account. Yeah, but so here's the question that I would throw back at you: Is think of that description, uh, decentralized, no ads, um, you know, sort of community driven. Name one platform or tool that is older than three years old that is still around and is successful that you can describe. That oh, way. yeah. There's not a single one. But but no. at the same time, I'll throw it back on you. Does that mean that we can't have one of those? If we could make it simple enough for people to have their own social network where it's decentralized, there's no server cost because it's whatever you're hosting yourself or, you know, however Mastodon is set up in in, in a simpler kind of way. Um, wouldn't that be better instead of having these platforms that every single thing needs to be monetized? I mean, you and I are both huge fans of Twitter, right? I think Twitter's an incredible utility, but until recently, they haven't had like a single good quarter. I, and I think this quarter, their quarter was good because they beat estimates, but they still lost money. So wouldn't it be better if we had something that was decentralized? No, <laughs> I, I, I just don't, I just don't think that model works. I don't think it will last. There's, there's going to be costs at some point. I mean, the first, um, you know, sort of cyber crime that happens on Mastodon, the whole thing goes away. You know, the government shuts it down. If there's nobody to fund it, if there's no way to drive it and build it and govern it, then it will eventually dissolve. And so you have to have uh, these platforms have to have a business model. They have to have someone responsible for them, and they have to have you know some sort of centralized something, some mechanism, or they there's nothing for them to stand on long term. And with that, Jason Falls crushed the communism of social media. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, let's uh, let's shift away from the technology for uh, for just a minute. We'll, I'm sure we'll come back to it, but I want to talk to you about you. I think you're a really interesting person, Jason, and I say that like. Without even the slightest bit of uh, irony or anything, you you really and and like I'm not trying to like blow smoke or anything. I really always have found you a really interesting dude. You're a straight shooter, um, and you know you're insightful about social. You're also sarcastic as shit about things. Um, <laughs> but throughout all of that, you know you've emerged as a particular type of person in this industry where there's tons of snake oil salesmen and tons of people that don't know what they're doing, and then there's you know. In completely different archetypes. How how did you get this way? Who tell me about how you became this person and and speak to me mainly about the influences on you from a personal perspective. Who are the people that helped to shape you to become this particular Jason Falls? Sure. Uh and, and I'm glad you asked me that question because I, I I I think I know the answer. I've thought about it a little bit. And I think it's interesting because I have an interesting sort of confluence of a few different influences that I can't, I think, make me the way I am. Um, the, the primary one, though, that drives sort of the sarcasm and the um, tell it like it is, the no bullshit sort of approach to life. Um, I grew up in a single parent household until I was about 10 years old when my, my mom and stepdad married. Um, and, uh, so it was just me and my mom for a while. And we lived in a small town in Eastern Kentucky. It's called Pikeville, Kentucky, about 7,500 people, real small town in, in Appalachia. 
And in that town in the 1970s and 80s, it was very much the sort of small town, you know, click system. It was if you if your parents had money, if you if you lived in the right neighborhood, if you drove the right car, if you ate, you know, Sunday brunch on Sunday at the right restaurants, then you were in. You were cool. You were accepted. If you didn't, you weren't. Um, and so you had the cool kids, you had the band kids, you had uh, the punks, and you had the nerds. And I didn't belong to any of those groups. I probably belonged to all of them and to some degree. I was kind of a, uh, you know, a tweener. I, I wasn't, you know, the rich kids. I wasn't in the band, but I hung out with the band folks. I, I was kind of a nerd, but I didn't really hang out with the nerds. And I lived right down the street from the housing project in town where all the punks lived. So I rode the bus with them. So I was associated with them a lot. So I was kind of in the middle of the social you know, caste system uh, of rural America in the 1970s and 80s. And what that produced in me was a heavy, heavy dose of uh, uh, sarcasm and having a chip on my shoulder about who I was and where I was from. And my mother and two grandmothers who essentially raised me sort of instilled in me this idea that you should be judged by your character, your integrity, and your intelligence. And that was what I thought the world was supposed to judge me on. And I learned very, very early, like eight, nine, 10 years old, that that's not how the world judges you. The world judges you by how much money you have. It judges you by what kind of car you drive. It judges you by what friends you hang out with, what your hairstyle is, et cetera, et cetera. And that pissed me off. And so I kind of grew up with this middle-class chip on my shoulder that gave me a perspective of always questioning authority, always questioning, you know, the, the direction people were going to know if that's the right direction. I didn't want to be a lemming running off the cliff. Um, I was always the person who was going to raise my hand and, and sort of be the contrarian, if you will. And, and it manifests itself in some fun ways too, because I grew up in Eastern Kentucky, everybody that I went to school with my, both my parents, et cetera, uh, both my parents went to the university of Kentucky. Uh, everybody that I went to school with and grew up with is, the University of Kentucky basketball fan. I am an anti-University of Kentucky basketball fan just because. So <laughs> I, I, I will root for whoever the hell Kentucky is playing just to piss everybody off. That's my personality. I have that sort of black sheep, uh, contrarian point of view uh, on the world. So I think that's one piece of, of how I got to be, uh, how I am from an attitudinal perspective. Um but I also think that my mother and the, the two grandmothers and my early bosses, so the, the bosses that I had at the radio station when I was growing up, uh, um, Melody Maypool, um, Walter May, uh, Randy Thompson, Keith Casebolt, these are guys that people, nobody's going to know who these people are unless you're in Pikeville, Kentucky. They taught me that, um, that in business, you, you know, your first goal should certainly be to make money to be successful, but a close second has to be to, to, to partner with other people to try and help them. If you can make money by helping other people be successful, then you're going to be successful eventually. And that sort of small town karma uh, has always been sort of baked into my DNA. So on one hand, I'm this contrarian, sarcastic, you know, sort of an asshole, quite frankly. Um, but on the other hand, I have this real genuine spirit of wanting to do good by the world, by other people and for other people. And it, it creates, an, I think, a nice mix. I, I think it makes a nice mix too. You, uh, your sports fandom reminds me of the Cowboys fans here in Philadelphia. I'm like, well, <laughs> 
Why? <laughs> what are you doing? You're, why are you doing that? So they're, um, they're I, just trying to get under your skin, man. Uh, and it that, works. That's it the works glory so well. of it, man. That's the glory of. There's not for for someone with my personality. There's nothing better than seeing someone squirm. And, and I have told people before that I am most happy when I make everybody in the room slightly uncomfortable. Just a little bit though. Not just like, a bit. not fully, yeah. not fully repulsed or turned up. Just like, wait, did he really, he, ugh, I don't know how I feel about that. Right. I'm the guy who I'm not going to swear in church, but I might wear an ACDC shirt. <laughs> And then you could casually explain it was because, you know, you're, you, you were uh, on your way to church and you had a button down on and then you had spilled syrup on it and you decided, you know, you just put your ACDC shirt on because you had to come to church. So that, that kind of gets you out of it, right? Exactly. (laughs) And then when they smile and understand, I'll say, got any wheat? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is, that is fantastic. Jason, take me, uh, when you um, and by the way, I'm really glad th- that you not only told me about uh, the contrarian side, but also kind of how you balance that, um, because that was going to be my follow up. I was going to uh, really wanted to talk because if you become that contrarian, sarcastic, want to make people squirm, you could easily become somebody who is not successful because mm-hmm. you push it too far. So I'm really glad that you brought in the people that kind of helped you to level that out um, and and set you on the right course of being able to use that, but not abuse that. Yeah. And, I, you know, there's, you know, the, obviously the people that I named that I worked with at the radio station were part of my early sort of professional, um, you know, tutelage, if you will. But, you know, my mom and stepdad had a printing company, a, a print shop when I was growing up and I saw them run a small business. I saw them, you know, how how they handled customers and and, and prioritized customer service and quality of work and whatnot. Um, and then when I got out into the world, you know, I was kind of a workaholic. Um, even in you know high school and college, I was working constantly. And every step along the way, you know, I picked, you know, lessons from each boss here and there. Um, and Randy Stacy was the uh, sports information director at Moorhead State when I was in college. And I was an intern in the sports information office, and he in, entrusted me with a lot of responsibility uh, as a sophomore, junior, and senior in college to handle you know, completely handle sports in terms of being their PR person. Um, so he, you know, he, he, he let me have quite a, a long leash, but he pulled me aside one time and he said, he said, Jason, you're very talented. You have the ability to do lots of different things really, really well. And that's going to serve you well in life. But at some point you have to realize that the fact that you know that you're very talented is going to get in your way. Your ego is going to be a problem if you don't learn how to reel it in because I could, I mean, I can be an asshole. I can be a real bear sometimes. And so, um, fortunately I didn't, you know, I didn't real. I wasn't really offended that he said that I was like, okay, that's something that's going to help me down the road. And so it took me a while. Cause when you have a big ego, it's hard to tell yourself that you need to tone it down. Right. Um, so it took me a while to kind of learn, you know, you've got to balance that and, and you can't push people to the point, uh, where they don't like you and they don't want to deal with you. Um, and now I haven't always done executed on that perfectly. There are plenty of people out there who don't like me. There's plenty of people in the social media digital marketing space who are, uh, you know, very influential people who don't like me wouldn't, you know, piss on me if I was on fire. That's fine. I get it. Um, and there's probably good reason for that. I probably said something smart to them or told an inappropriate joke they didn't like or whatever. Um, but so I, I've learned that I have to reel it in and I have to balance 
my personality and my attitude with being somewhat humble and serving others and trying to be do good by other people. Uh, but at the same time, I have also realized over the years that the world is not an in some game. I don't need everybody to like me in order to be successful. I just need the right people to like me. So understanding who they are and behaving the way that you need to behave to, to preserve those relationships is, is the trick. I'm, I'm definitely curious about who these people are that don't like you, but we won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> but so I totally get this because I have a pretty healthy ego myself and there is a challenge of balancing it so that you can let that, you know, the, the confidence that comes along with having a, a healthy ego come through. Uh, while at the same time maintaining a level of humility that allows you to be more warmly received. And if you kind of go overboard in either direction, you're either thought arrogant if you go too much or you don't get the opportunity to truly promote yourself if if you're too humble and, and have too much humility. So that's – I think it's an amazing lesson that you have to learn, especially with your personality type, and that's a big lesson. But talk to me a little bit about – You've had a long career at this point. You've gone through a lot of different types of jobs. If you could go back and talk to early Jason Falls and give him one piece of advice that you wish you had learned earlier in your career, that you've learned maybe in the last few years, you're like, oh, shit, if I had learned that in my 20s, just imagine. So you know, if, if you hadn't learned that bit about humility and balancing your ego, your career might be in a wildly different place. So that's an important lesson. What's one that you wish at this point you could go back and have learned earlier? By Google. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly um, a lesson. <laughs> well, no, it's not. Uh, but I, I do think that the lesson I think that I would go back and tell my younger self is, um, uh, is that you need to, you need to not be afraid of what you don't know. And I think if I went back and looked at, at all the different points in my life where I missed opportunities, it was because I was scared of, of, of not having a grasp of the situation, of not having enough knowledge of, um, you know, not feeling like I was qualified for the opportunity, um, you know, in, in, in life, in business and, and in, you know, taking a new job or moving to a new city or whatnot, there's a, there's a healthy amount of faking it till you make it that you just have to do. And I don't think I became comfortable with that until I was well into my thirties. Had I known that when I was in my teens or my twenties, I would have taken a bunch of other opportunities and probably had a completely different, uh, career path. Um, and I remember when I made the transition from college sports information, being a PR guy in, in athletics to mainstream marketing, advertising and PR, that was the first big leap that I made where I was like, I have no earthly idea if my skill set's going to transfer. I don't know if I'm going to be able to sink or swim in this, in this world, this mainstream advertising, marketing, PR world. I'm just a dumb guy who watches ball games for a living. How in the world am I going to be able to survive with these people who have been in the ad game or the PR game, you know? on the, in the mainstream for, for a decade or, so, or more. And the first month that I was on the job at Doe Anderson, this was 2005, 2006. Uh, the first month I was on the job, I was scared to death that I was going to screw something up, that I was, there was some great, you know, wall of knowledge that I had not climbed over that I needed to climb over to be successful. And then I think it was probably about 30 or so days into the job, I made some suggestions to a client on an account. They liked the idea. We implemented it. We actually got some budget for it, and it was successful. And I started to think, wait a minute. 
I don't have to fake it. I actually do know what I'm doing. My skill set does transfer. I don't, I don't need to be intimidated by this new world. I don't need to be afraid of what I don't know because A, I know a little bit more than I thought and B, the world's not as complicated as you think it is. Um, and so I think that the advice that I would give anybody um, who's, you know, young in their career. And certainly if I could go back to 18 or 22 year old Jason Falls, I would say, dude, don't be afraid of what you don't know. Fake it till you make it is a perfectly fine strategy because you're smart or you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be going for these opportunities. You wouldn't get these opportunities. You're going to figure it out. Don't be scared of it. So that's, I think, an amazingly uh, important lesson, but it seems so common sense, right? Like, just fake it till you make it. Like, you've heard it so many times, but um, it is true. I think if uh, so many successful people that I've spoken to are people that are even just satisfied and happy in their career, that's the sort of thing that they would say is like, you know, in the beginning, you're not going to know. You're going to fail. You're going to struggle. But then you're going to move past that and you're either going to realize how to fix it or learn what you need to learn or you'll fail and you move on to the next thing and it'll all be all right, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The only thing that I would – the exception to the rule for me was waiting tables. I tried that once. I was terrible at it. Really? <laughs> yeah. I was in an olive garden for three weeks and <laughs> and the last day – and I was, I, was, I was just fumbling around. I wasn't doing very well. I wasn't getting good tips. The last day I had a table of six women for lunch. And probably, you know, 12, 15 bucks a plate easy. And they had a bottle of wine. So it was a pretty nice table. I should have gotten a healthy tip out of that. Six women for lunch, $3 tip. And so I walked into the manager's office and took my apron off and my little, you know, my little black order book, whatever that was called. uh, And I wrapped them up together and I handed it to the manager and I said, I am terrible at this. (laughs) And I just left. (laughs) I would honestly pay to watch like a Saturday Night Live skit of Jason Falls waiting tables at Olive Garden. Like right now, like with your sarcasm of today, (laughs) like that's a skit that I would watch like a series of. Well, and you know what's funny is, you know, there's that when I'm in a situation like a retail situation with customers, because I had to do it a little bit with Cafe Press because we had a retail shop and whatnot. You know, I can put on the smiling face and be the pleasant, you know, retail person, but my personality does come out. You know, I'll make little smart ass comments or tell jokes or whatever. And, you know, I try to have fun with it. Like I would walk, you know, through the Olive Garden, you know, basically lounge singer style singing rap songs just because I knew someone would get it and laugh. And, um, and there, you know, there's nothing better than, you know, walking out in public and you know, being so much drama in the LBC. It's kind of <laughs> hard being stupid. So you know, things like that just make people laugh. And so I would do that. Um, and I, I bet if you had, you know, you know, hidden cameras in that Olive Garden, it'd be pretty amusing even back then. But if I did it now, knowing that, uh, that I don't have to be afraid of failure, that if I get fired from that job, there will be another and I'll be able to pay my bills. I would have so much fun screwing with people. That'd be so, that'd be a lot of fun. Uh, no, I, I would seriously pay to see it. Maybe just as part of your own Jason Falls content strategy, if you want to put that together just for me, like find somebody you know that's got a restaurant and just, you know, get some fake cut. Just, oh, it'd be so good. Um Jason, talk talk to me a little bit about. I want to give some advice for people listening from the from the mind and wisdom of Jason Falls as you've seen things. You've watched a lot of things develop. You've seen technologies come and go. Um, what's what's one important skill of the future that you think anybody listening right now should be prepared for? Should be learning about? Should be, you know, getting themselves in the position to succeed with people who know how to communicate 
are, are the people who are going to stick around. Um, and, and that's communicating orally. It's communicating via the written word. It's being able to communicate, uh, you know, certainly potentially through, through technology, whether it be, you know, being able to build a good PowerPoint presentation or, or put together, you know, a video, uh, and edit a video together. If you know how to communicate an idea and transmit that idea to people, you're going to find an opportunity, uh, in, in life in a lot of different areas. And I think that's true for any industry, you know, the best, uh, and most successful accountants in the world not only know how to do the numbers and not only know how to do the audits and the tax returns and all that good stuff, they know how to communicate the uh, opportunities, strengths, weaknesses, threats, and whatnot to their clients. They know how to communicate internally to move up the ladder, to get things done. Uh, communication is, is, is the key. And, you know, I majored in communication in college. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm a great communicator. Uh, my ex-wife will attest to that. Uh, but at the same time, the people who are successful in business and the people who are successful personally in, in marriages and everything else are the ones who concentrate on being able to communicate well with the different stakeholders that are in their lives in those opportunities. And so uh, if you don't know how to write, if you don't know how to stand up in front of a room full of people and speak, if you don't know how to persuade someone to uh, you know, adjust to your ideas or maybe, you know, buy your ideas. Um, I'm not saying you're going to fail. I'm not saying you're going to struggle. I'm just saying that you're going to be much more apt to be successful if you can do all of those things and do them well. I think the accountant example is a really good one because actually the, the problem I've been having in finding a, an amazing accountant is not people who can match, you know, do the spreadsheet or look at my QuickBooks file, but to communicate to me that everything's fine because that's as the customer of the accountant, what I'm looking for is peace of mind. And that doesn't happen from them showing me uh, uh, pages full of numbers. It comes from them saying everything's fine. So okay. it's a, I think it's a really good point. I want to actually follow up on that because you have kids and – uh, there's a lot that's said about millennials and then the generation comes after. I guess it's Generation Z. I, I don't know. But there's – you know, you've got kids. I don't know exactly how old your kids are. But um, when you look at the younger generation that's coming into the workforce and the generations after that and then you look at your kids, do you think that communication as a result of all this technology is becoming more challenging or have you, or, or you of that opposite belief that this is just part of the evolution of communication? I think it's a little of both. I, you know, I, I think that, that we are in a time where the technology is dictating an evolution in communication, but I also think that the technology in this case, in some instances, is making it more challenging and more difficult. Um, it's, it's hard to communicate with someone whose attention is diverted, and we have created a world where technology divides our attention infinitesimally these days. Um, you know, even, you know, when I come home from work and uh, my son and daughter are there with the babysitter. You know, my son's playing Xbox or he's locked into his phone playing some other sort of game on his phone. My daughter's doing musicallys on her iPod with her friends. And, you know, even if I say, how was your day at school? They, they don't even hear me. So I have to kind of forcefully say, okay, turn off or turn down the device for a few minutes. Let's have a conversation. So I think we're having to put more effort into good communications, um, which is all the more reason why we need to focus on being good communicators. Because if, if you, if, if you get the communication part, right, you still have a challenge today. And I don't see that changing anytime soon because we keep creating worlds where our attentions are demanded in multiple areas. And if 
we're, we're, we're becoming an ADD society and that just is going to make it much more difficult for us to uh, get ideas from one point to another and, and make them work. So it's a little bit of both. I don't know that there's anything we can really do to reverse the trend. Um, technology is going to go where technology goes. And, and if some part of it makes our life easier or better or smarter, then we're going to take the good with the bad, the bad being that it's going to divide our attentions even further. So we've got to be good communicators first and then work around the other challenges as well. I used to theorize even very recently that the generation coming up that those among them who know how to communicate face-to-face would be the most successful. And I think as I'm watching technology develop more and more, especially with kind of those immersive experiences, sort of what you talked about with like musically with the headphones on or being an Xbox with your, your headset on or things like that, or now you look at virtual reality or forthcoming mixed realities and things like that. I'm beginning to question my own theory on that. And I'm thinking that the people who know how to communicate face-to-face or that focus on that as a skill may fall further behind than those that live in these completely virtual worlds. So I don't know. It's a little bit uh, frightening, but um, maybe the jury's still out on it. I I don't know that I would agree. I I still think the face-to-face communication, you know, when I when I sit down with my kids and they put down their devices and we look at each other in the face and we have conversations, I can tell in them that they are, it, th- there's a connection there. Like I'm connecting with my kids. Whereas if we're just sitting watching TV together and I say something, there's not a, as much of a connection. I think the face-to-face, the interpersonal communication uh, is still going to be the the critical skill set that we all need to be able to make those real human connections with each other. Um, technology is going to get in the way, yes, but I think you're going to value the relationship that you have with people who will look you in the eye and get rid of devices and put them away to have that interchange. Uh, you're going to value those relationships more than you're going to value any other because there's this implicit uh, sort of uh, atmosphere of respect uh, and dignity that comes with that. If I sit down and have lunch with you and I put my phone in my pocket and I turn off the ringer and it doesn't buzz and it doesn't distract me and I'm locked into having that conversation with you, you're going to react to me, whether you know it or not, it's going to be subconscious. You're going to react to me a lot differently than someone who sits down, has their phone on the table and is constantly picking it up and looking at it. So I think that interpersonal uh, communication skill set is, is going to be more important uh, moving forward for for anyone. That's generally been my theory of it, and and I and uh, I'm not disagreeing with it. I guess I've just come to question it a little bit lately um, because I feel like there's so many technological advancements, and there's so many people that may not have had enough experience with face to face. Like like you and I grew up, um, you know, different eras, but but we both grew up in a time where you talked to people face to face, or when you called people's houses, there was potentially a voicemail, but you weren't calling them on a cell phone. Like we grew right. up in different eras, and I'm wondering if you know people who grow up in this completely attention deficit, divided virtual space. If I, I guess the question is, will it always be that way? I guess that's what it comes down. Will will face to face communication always be the the highest pinnacle of connection and conversation, or will it? Will it eventually be replaced by something else? Well, I, I and and I, I see where you're coming from there, and I, I agree that that's a, a question that we have yet to answer. But I go back to, um, you know, your in in the relationships that you have with your family. Um, when you like, for instance, when you hug someone, 
whether it's your you know spouse, significant other, your kids, your parent, your brother, sister, whatever, when you hug someone, the, it it releases hormones into your bloodstream that change the way your body operates. Like it, it's a it's a biological thing. And this, I think the same thing happens, although I don't have scientific proof of this. I know there's scientific proof that exists on the hugging thing. But I think if you look somebody in the eye and have a conversation with them, the same type of thing happens, at least in your brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's an, an, an innately animal instinct thing. I think technology may make us smarter, faster, better. But that humanity of inter- an interchange with another human being is something that we're always intrinsically going to value more because our bodies won't let us not. I think that's a perfect point for us to shift to the rapid fire questions. That was uh, a good point to end that on. Cool. Thanks. All right. So you ready for some rapid fire questions? I guess. All right. Well, there's only uh, five <laughs> of them. And uh, here we go. You got your phone nearby? I do. What are the apps in your dock? The apps in my dock are uh, phone, mail, messages, and music. Amazing. I, I, when I created this question like 30 some odd episodes ago, I really thought I was going to get a lot different answers for what people put in their dock than like the standard apps, but it seems to almost always be standard apps. Um, But it's, it's the personal communication. It's that's, that's what's important. I guess it makes, I just, I I don't know if anybody said Facebook yet, which I find fascinating. Yeah. I think it's good too, but I mean, it's interesting. Uh, What's one application, mobile, desktop, web, whatever that you can't live without because it's just so damn useful. One, one. That's it. Um, I'm going to go Headspace. Um, I've taken up meditation in the last three or four years, Mm -hmm. and it keeps me grounded. It keeps me calm. It's a meditation app, Headspace. Cool. You're the second person that said that, I think. So that's a a good recommendation for people listening. Uh, So if you didn't like that question, you're going to hate this one. All social media sites are going to be deleted tomorrow. I don't know if you read this, but uh, President Trump signed an executive order. Um, and all all social media sites are going to be deleted tomorrow except for one. And I actually uh, had a call with the Donald earlier, and he said that I could pick one person to choose one social site to live on forever. And I guess I'm just going to ask you because you're here, what one social site lives on? Facebook. It's it's a social utility. It's it's It, it can do everything. Is that a business decision or is that a personal decision? Both. All right, interesting. Uh, what's one book every business person should read? This could be fiction, nonfiction, whatever. And caveat, your books are obviously going to be listed in the show notes and talked about anyway. So try to highlight others. <laughs> yeah, so you don't get to, you know, self flatulate yourself. Oh, don't worry. There, there's, there, I think that's a different thing, but there's a there's a section <laughs> coming up for that. But uh, what's one book every business person should read? Oh, man. I, you know, for what we do, for what I do, I, I have always been in love with Brand Hijack by Alex Whipperforth. Um, <clears throat> it's a book from the early 2000s, and it's really about um, empowering your uh, fans and your customer communities to uh, to own the brand themselves. I just love it. And, and it, it fuels a lot of, of my thinking. Awesome. Uh, final one, my favorite question. If you could have any one superpower, what would it be? <laughs> oh, Christ. Um, uh, one superpower. I, I'd like to be able to see the future. Interesting. That'd Wouldn't be, that take I'd, the fun I'd, out of things? No, no. It, I'd be really rich. Yeah, you awesome. would. <laughs> but no, I think I'd, I, yeah, I think I'd, 
I think taking the taking the uncertainty out of life would be really kind of neat. Okay. It'd be it'd be scary, but it'd be kind of neat too. All right, interesting. Yeah. Uh the the superpower question I always love because uh I deconstruct every guest based upon what they say. Uh, because <laughs> every superpower says something about you because you can take uh-huh. it to be what would they use that for nefarious purposes and what would they use it for good purposes and how would they be a super uh-huh. villain or a superhero? So I, I would I would definitely get rich, but I would do good things with the money, so it'd be cool. Well, there's that. But you would also see the impact of uh, all the good things you did with that money, including all of the negative consequences of potentially, you know, trying to do the right thing. And then the, you know, the other side of that. See, that's why I drink. I don't, I don't, I don't. Oh, think so you would see the future and then black out drunk. Yeah. I'd, I'd <laughs> see the, I'd see the good part and then be like, I don't want to see the rest of it. Give me a bourbon. That's fantastic. Oh, I should, I, I'm adding one more rapid fire question. Your favorite okay. bourbon. You're from Louisville. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm from Kentucky. I live in Louisville, which is, you know, sort of the bourbon, you know, capital of the world. Actually, Bardstown, Kentucky, which is 45 minutes south of, her, south of here, takes that title, actually. But Louisville's kind of bourbon central. Uh, my favorite bourbon is Elijah Craig Small Batch, which used to be Elijah Craig 12-year. They've taken the age statement off the bottle now. Uh, but it's my favorite bourbon because it's a sweet bourbon. It's very smooth. It, it mixes well, but you can also drink it neat. And it also happens to be the bourbon that my dad drinks. And so that's kind of a connection with my dad. That's cool. Um, all right. So, Jason, this is the uh, the point in the show where I hand it over to you and you get to talk about anything you want. You get to promote anything you're working on, tell people where they can find you, how they can work with you, how they can give you money so that you can be rich. It's your time. <laughs> well, uh, you know, if you're interested in finding out more about your customers uh, and and what they think about products, services, competitors, et cetera, Conversation Research Institute is uh, my company. I would love to talk to you about uh, researching your customers and or competitors for whatever purposes you deem important. ConversationResearchInstitute.com is the website. I'm Jason Falls everywhere. JasonFalls.com is where I sort of blog and throw out small business, you know, helpful stuff. Um, and then I'm Jason Falls on all the social networks, happy to answer questions and all that good stuff. And if you're hosting an event or a conference, I have a tendency to uh, light up the audience a little bit with some humor and some fun and, and information and inspiration. So love to speak at your event. You can find all that information at JasonFalls.com. And, uh, and then, yeah, that's about it for me. Cool, man. Well, just for anybody listening to that, I, uh, I'm just going to lob on an endorsement. I've seen Jason speak a number of times and it's always a good time. You definitely bring the energy, which is nice in, uh, in a world where so many speakers are just boring as sin. <laughs> I think the, the fun, you were there, I believe it was at social media plus in, in Philly years ago, but, uh, um, the mayor uh, of Philly, uh, welcomed everyone. And then, um, and then I came up, I was the opening keynote for the event that day. It's one of my favorite memories ever. The mayor walks off stage, they introduce me and the mayor is, you know, making his way to the back of the room, shaking hands. And I came up and said, everybody, let's give the mayor one more round of applause. He was under a lot of pressure this morning. He's never opened for me before. And, <laughs> and, and I think he even like turned and looked and smiled and gave me a thumbs up. I thought that was, that was a fun time. That's awesome. That's very cool. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for uh, making the time coming on the show. I know you're super busy, but it's always great to catch up with you and chat and talk about what's going on. I definitely want to have you back on to talk about social listening and go really deep on that so we can give people uh, some insight onto how that works that maybe they can start uh, doing it, you know? Yeah, man. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being here and hopefully I was uh, useful.
Yeah, as always. So for all you listeners out there, thank you for coming on, uh, for, for listening to our show and, and giving us your time and attention. We just cracked 10,000 downloads recently, and we're really excited about that. So onward and upward to the top. Keep listening and keep sharing the episode. Uh, this one was shareable. That was so much fun. I can't even believe the guests that we get. I mean, can you believe the guests that we get? I can, actually. I schedule them. Awesome. Well done. Well, this episode for me was an absolute blast, and I hope everyone listening really enjoyed it. But now that we're in this fun little outro, what should people do next? Hmm. I think they should check us out on iTunes. Definitely go check us out on iTunes. And when you get there, subscribe, drop us a review, and then what's that one last thing we want them to do? I don't know. Share the episode. Oh, that's right. That's right. It's in the name. So... Please share this episode, tell everyone you know, and we'll see you on the next episode of Shareable. Bye.